1: Today we're talking with the principal investigators of the Healthy Mind Study, a national annual survey that examines college students' mental health. Dr. Daniel Eisenberg is a professor of health policy and management in the Fielding School of Public Health at the University of California, Los Angeles. And Dr. Sarah Ketchen Lipson is an assistant professor in the Department of Health Law, Policy and Management at the Boston University School of Public Health. The most recent data report from the Healthy Mind Study from the winter and spring of 2021 was published in September. So thank you both so much for coming on the podcast today.
2: Thanks for having us.
1: Yes, thanks for having us. So the Healthy Mind Study is such a valuable resource, not just for us at MCI, but for higher education administrators and policymakers generally, and for practitioners of college mental health. So, Daniel, let's start with you. What led you to create the survey?
2: So when I arrived at University of Michigan to start my faculty career in 2004, student mental health was on my mind because I had previously been a postdoc at UC Berkeley, and I talked a bit with a graduate student there at the time named Tamina Madan, who was leading a, an advocacy and also a survey data collection effort related to graduate student mental health. And just from talking with her a little bit back then, I, I thought, well, my with my background in economics, it might be interesting to try to get more data about student mental health and then uh, get a better sense of what kinds of investments we might be making or we might be missing opportunities for with respect to student mental health. So in 2005, we started the initial Healthy Mind Survey at University of Michigan, and I worked closely with couple of graduate students. And then it grew from there. It became a national study. And then when Sarah arrived as a graduate student at University of Michigan, then uh, that kind of brought, brought new energy, new life to the whole thing. And we expanded it even more. And maybe Sarah can say a bit about that.
0: Yeah. So I think not only do Daniel and I share an interest in the topic of mental health and of college student mental health in particular, but we also share this driving motivation to be collecting data that is relevant to solving problems and relevant to policies and programs and decision-making. So we've really, over the last you know, eight or so years since I've been working with Healthy Minds, really prioritized dissemination of the data and ways that the data can be as useful as possible to informing programs and policies on campus. And then in fall of 2015, we made a pretty major shift to the way that the survey is organized and run when we moved to having a modular organization to the survey. So kind of allowed us to expand the breadth of topics that we cover and that we're collecting data on, which is particularly important because mental health is affected by so many things and it affects so many things. So it has this, you know, really complicated bi-directional relationship with so many outcomes that we care about. You know, I think every year we try to enhance the survey, enhance the usefulness of the data it's an ongoing initiative that has just gained so much momentum. And now we have, you know, this huge team. There was a time when it was, pretty much just Daniel and I working on this survey. And now we have a team of about 15 people who are involved in the running of this uh, big operation, the Healthy Mind Study.
1: Thanks, Sarah. I'm glad that you mentioned that it was born in 2005. And I think recently, it seems since 2015, you've been collecting data in this specific way. So maybe since 2015, what have you seen emerge
0: as big takeaways and trends over those years? Sarah, let's start with you. Sure. That's actually an interesting time point to call out because over the last 10 years, we've we've certainly seen an increase in the prevalence of mental health problems, but really over the last five or six years, so really since about 2015. And importantly, that's on measures that we've always had in the survey. So for example, the PHQ-9, which is our nine item measure of depression in the Healthy Mind Study, that has always been in the study. And so we can see over time and in particular since about 2015, a real increase in the Prevalence of symptoms of depression, anxiety, suicidality. We've seen a decrease in rates of stigma. We've seen that students are more open to talking about their mental health with their peers, and we have seen an increase in help-seeking for mental health. Though the flip side of that is that there's still a really large treatment gap for mental health on college campuses and a lot of really negative preventable consequences that might be attributed to that treatment gap. And then, of course, some pretty significant inequalities in terms of which students are accessing mental health services. But I would say the increasing prevalence, increasing help-seeking, and decreasing stigma are some of the biggest trends that we've noticed. Definitely, and I think that's
1: reflected in other data that we've seen over the past few years as well. So the most recent report publishes data gathered in the winter and spring 2021, which is pretty much a year into the coronavirus pandemic, or at least its presence in the United States. And Healthy Minds continued collecting data throughout the pandemic and published a report with ACHA, the American College Health Association, on COVID's impact on student mental health, and those numbers were pretty stark. I wonder if you don't mind just briefly explaining what you saw in terms of the initial impact of COVID, and what are you seeing now, and if there is even a comparison to be made there. Daniel, why don't we start with you?
2: Yeah, it's an interesting picture when you look at the data altogether, because first of all, we're not seeing huge increases in the report of distress, such as depressive symptoms and anxiety symptoms during the pandemic. We're seeing small increases. So actually it's more in line with the trend that was already occurring than really any kind of notable departure from that trend. At the same time, we we saw some clear evidence that students early in the pandemic in particular were reporting difficulties in accessing mental health care, which is not surprising considering all the upheaval and, and where people were living and just the ability to get regular kind of in-person mental health care We also saw clear evidence that students are feeling like the financial stress in their lives and the lives of their family has increased and a pretty large proportion of students reporting that loved ones have have died from COVID even. So we're seeing clear evidence of strong effects on people's lives, but at the same time in the overall population, not necessarily a large departure from pre-existing trends. And I think one interpretation of that would be that while many students, a large fraction of students probably are experiencing significant mental health problems as a result of the pandemic or in large part because of the pandemic. There's a kind of countervailing forces where maybe another large fraction of students are actually getting a little bit more support, getting different kinds of support than they were before. Maybe they're living with family or more closely in contact with family, for example, as one example of support. So the overall picture You can think of it as maybe kind of the ocean water, the level of ocean water has remained about the same, but underneath there's a lot going on.
1: And in terms of the report that came out in September... Is there anything else that is new in this report? I think I saw a portion on school climate, and I wasn't sure is
0: that new or is that something that's been recently added? Sure. Yeah. So there's a couple of, of things that we have added in recent years. One is a three-item loneliness scale, which is, you know, we think about loneliness and isolation, particularly in the pandemic. So not surprisingly, we've seen and about two-thirds of students are reporting feelings of loneliness um, and isolation based on the UCLA three-item scale. We did add an item asking students to rate their campus in terms of how proactive the school is in anti-racism efforts on campus. So we have some new data related to that, which might be what you're referring to, Dana, but also In our new modular system, or not that new, we started it in fall of 2015, but we've added some new modules, including one on diversity, equity, and inclusion, led by our colleague, Sarah Abelson developed that module. And so we have a lot of items in an elective module that we have new data on. And maybe it's a good time to mention that we make all of our data publicly available. So we're always excited when folks want to work with those data and, and use the data and disseminate the information. So we do have a lot of new data around kind of school climate and issues related to diversity, equity, and inclusion.
1: That's great. And I'm glad you mentioned the uh, loneliness scale. I'm curious about that, especially over the past year and a half, two years, have you noticed big changes there? Is it something that like mental health has sort of stayed the same,
0: but you think might have some, you know, underground changes? Like everything with our survey work, it's always a matter of, can we fit this into the survey? We don't want to have the survey be too long. And so we actually just prioritized adding loneliness in fall of 2020. So we only have two semesters of data on that three item scale. And I believe that the the response categories are pretty similarly distributed for those three items in fall of 2020 and spring of 2021. But I think fall of 2021, at least just thinking about my own experience at Boston University feels quite different from last academic year. So it will be interesting to look at the loneliness data after this semester and after this academic year. And I think we'll be continuing to include those items in the survey moving forward. (music)
1: We're taking a quick break to thank the sponsor of this episode, Christy Campus Health, dedicated to supporting the mental health and well-being of college students. So, rates of anxiety and depression are rising or staying at a high level, and like you said, Sarah, you and Daniel are researchers, but you are also advocates and experts in this area. So, I'm curious for both of you, and we can start with Daniel. What can be done to address this issue? And I know that's a really big question, so maybe we can break it down to what can college decision makers do with this information policy, administrators, that sort of thing?
2: One area where our team is hoping to help college administrators is going from this descriptive kind of data that we've been talking about to then then look at data and evidence about what's effective, what kinds of interventions and programs are effective in addressing student mental health. And we know there's a pretty solid base of evidence regarding clinical services. We feel like counseling centers, well, there's always open questions and there's always, of course, individual cases that are difficult to determine what's the best thing to do. But generally, I think there's reasonable consensus about what types of clinical services are effective. But on kind of the more public health side or the community level, it's less clear what's most helpful for student mental health. And so on our side as researchers, what we're Planning to do, and we've started to do a little bit of this is to try to synthesize the available research evidence, the evaluation evidence on what works, and then translate that in a clear way to decision makers like college and uh, university administrators. And that's something also that organizations like the Jed Foundation and the Steve Fund have also been doing in recent years. And then I, th- I think for then, in terms of what college administrators, and campus administrators, and practitioners can do, I think is. I would just encourage them to pay close attention to the evidence. We realize that it's, it's muddled at this point and incomplete, but we're going to be helping to, along these other organizations, helping to make sense of it. And also, we, we'd like to know from the point of view of administrators and practitioners, like what additional evidence would be most useful to guide your efforts. So we also are hoping to have a collaborative relationship as we move forward on this front.
1: And Sarah, anything to add there? And additionally, any other stakeholders on campus that have a role to play or off campus? Sure.
0: Perhaps unsurprisingly, I would have started with those same points around kind of the importance of data collection and then thinking through a public health approach. And we've seen higher education take a public health approach to COVID prevention. And I think we have a lot of lessons that can kind of be translated to thinking about population level mental health prevention and identification and early intervention. In addition to that, I think there are factors that exist at a system level that are shaping student mental health that college leaders are thinking about and need to be continuing to think about. So policies and programs that leave students more susceptible to discrimination or leave students feeling less like they belong and are valued on campus. I think you know that some of my recent work is focused on policies that may uniquely affect trans and non-binary students. So things like name change policies. And of course, you know, I'm trying to collect data to show the effects of discriminatory policies and how they are contributing to inequalities among that population. But I also wish that we didn't need data in the first place and we could just say we have the, the ability as campus leaders to change policies and systems in ways that students are letting us know are important to them. So I would encourage campus leaders to of course continue to to look to the data, but also to to prioritize system level factors and changes that can, you know, just protect students and make sure that they feel safe on campus. And then another thing is related to the role of of faculty on campus, which is something that we've talked about on the quadcast quite a bit. And we've talked about faculty's own mental health, which is really important. And I'm happy to continue to talk about that. And also faculty have a really key role in supporting students, which is not around being a trained mental health professional, but more so again, about thinking about how does my course structure and requirements, how might that be shaping student mental health? So especially right now, you know, having some flexibility in terms of deadlines for students is really key. We've seen an increase in our Healthy Minds student data of students reporting that their mental health is negatively affecting their academic performance. So I think for faculty to be aware of that and also for campus leaders to better equip faculty to serve in a key gatekeeper role on campus.
1: Thanks, Sarah. And you mentioned the effect of some discriminatory policies and practices as an area of interest for you. And I'm curious for both of you what are some other emerging topics that you are hoping to explore more in the field of college mental well being and, and preventative measures? Daniel, how about you?
2: I'm also interested in shifting the focus a bit more towards positive mental health and kind of broader indicators of well being we've mainly we mainly focused to date on indicators of mental health risk like depressive symptoms anxiety symptoms suicide risk and so on we've always included a measure of flourishing and positive mental health but i think i think we could go even beyond that in terms of what we measure and what we talk about for example like students students kind of sense of purpose or the me- or sense of feeling that like there's some meaning In their in their lives and how that relates to their well being and their life satisfaction. Those kinds of issues are of course relevant to every single student at every time point. And I I think that might also kind of shift us a bit. From I mean, it's important that we've been very focused on the risks and the the distressing situation, but I think there's also a positive side where we could be doing more in terms of assessing well-being and then, and then actually translating that into actions.
1: Yeah, thank you. I really love that frame. And I think there's a lot to learn there. Definitely. Sarah, why don't we end with you? Any
0: emerging topics that you are interested in exploring or last thoughts that you'd like to share? Sure. I echo all of the interests and priorities that Daniel just mentioned. We've also been doing some work trying to link our student-level survey data to campus-level data. So around policies and more mutable characteristics of institutions to try to look at associations there. Related to sort of flourishing and positive mental health, there's folks on our team who are really interested in resilience and coping. Maybe also a good time to mention that we have a writing lab that's part of our Healthy Minds Network, and the goal is to bring in researchers and support them using our data to answer research questions of interest to them. And it's been really exciting to see that a lot of the folks that are part of the writing lab are interested in questions related to mental health equity. So I'm hoping that we'll continue to provide really important information um, from Healthy Minds data that can inform equity and mental health equity on campus. And then, of course, our faculty and staff survey, I think, is a new initiative with the Healthy Minds Network, and it means that for some schools that participate in both the student-level data as well as faculty and staff-level data collection, we're going to be able to look at their entire campus population and kind of the relationships between students faculty and staff
1: that's great well i can't wait to see that thank you both so much for being here the work that you do is so valuable and so important and we learn a lot from you each time one of these reports come out so thank you also for that this has been a great conversation thank you dana
0: this has been the quadcast a program of the mary christie institute to learn more about our work, go to marychristieinstitute.org, where you can sign up for our other programs like the MC feed and the Mary Christie quarterly. And if you like what we're doing, leave us a rating or review on your favorite podcast player. Thanks so much for listening.